This is the Off Duty On Duty Podcast, episode number 13. I'm your host, Brian Eastridge, and welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network. The Off Duty On Duty Podcast, we take topics relevant to today's gun owners and we tackle them from the perspective of everyday concealed carriers and the perspective of on duty law enforcement officers, giving you all the angles of discussion. Today, my guest in the studio is Kyle Eastridge. We'll get into that in a little bit, a uh, little bit more time here. Give you the rundown on him. Today's topic: we're going to talk two officer-involved shootings, the differences and some lessons learned, and some takeaways that you can use for the concealed carrier or the modern law enforcement officer. But first word from our sponsors this episode's brought to you by mountain man medical mountain man medical is focused on two core principles first build med kits and trauma kits that consist of name brand and proven tested components second make them the most affordable of any company on the market check out the full lineup of products and kits from mountainmanmedical.com and remember law enforcement officers firearms instructors and other professionals can save up to 15 percent check them out at mountainmanmedical.com Kyle Eastridge, the name may sound familiar because he is also my uncle, and uh, I got him today for about 45 minutes, and we're going to talk about two shootings that he was involved in. We're going to talk some loosely about some of the, the details, and he is the only human being that I know of personally that has been in a shooting with not only a revolver, but also with a semi-automatic handgun, which is near and dear to my heart, the Beretta 92. So we're going to tap into a little bit of that today. All right. Your mic is live, Kyle. All right. So a little background. You started with the into law enforcement, what, 19 and? 85. 85. That was a good year. Yep. Sammy Hagar joined Van Halen. <laughs> we try to keep it light, by the way. And then uh, let's see. You did about, what, five, six years in uh, patrol, air support, I did uh I did eight years in in the various patrol units. Oh, okay. I, I went to investigations. Yeah, I just uh, remember getting some free helicopter rides once in a while. Oh yeah, you're out there. That was a good time. That was, that was a good job. That was a good time. And uh, we'll see. After that, you went to what? Uh, larceny then assaults. I went to the impact unit briefly. Oh, that's right. And uh, when they first started that down at Santa Fe Southside. And then I went to uh, Larceny when I went to in, uh, went into investigations, and I was there for a few months. Went over to the assault unit. The one thing I like to tell people is, uh, you you and another guy kind of started the unit that grew into one of the largest investigative units on the department. And that was the Domestic Violence Investigations Unit. That, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was a good time. <laughs> that kind of grew into a monster. I mean, not, please don't take this as we're like. Uh, making light of domestic violence. But uh, at the time, we're talking right on the heels of the O.J. Simpson, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her sister, who I cannot remember, kind of uh, the activism there kind of started domestic violence investigations as a a separate topic from uh, just simple assaults. Because up until that time, they were were just regarded as a simple physical assault. That's uh, correct. Yeah. Yeah, and that and that incident brought uh, some light to that. That's a terrible problem, and it's a it's a complicated uh, situation to investigate. And it's uh, again, we're not making light of it, but it's a uh, 
it is a difficult situation for even law enforcement to, to get those cases through court. It's interesting that that has grown into one of the largest units on most police departments investigative. That's just a, uh, that's just indicative of what a problem it is. Yeah, know? exactly. I've talked to some of my peers and they're like, yeah, I'm making a trip through DV. And I'm like, yeah, I remember when that was a two man unit, you yeah. know? And- well, I think it was more than that when we first moved over there, but it, it transitioned from the assault unit and then, uh, you know, it, it became its own unit out of that. It morphed out of that into its own unit. And then I, uh, I went there for a while and then, and then went back to assaults before I went to homicide. Also kind of on the cusp there of, uh, drive-by shootings when those statutes yep. kind of came to be. That's so correct. That's uh, that, that's pretty interesting that you were on the forefront of those those two investigative uh, subject matters really early in the game. Let's see. And then you've, you rounded out your time in the homicide investigation unit, and that was, uh, was around the time that I hired on the police department. And how many years did you spend doing that uh, for the city? I was there for eight years, and my last few years there, I was in the cold case unit with Mike Burke, and we were, we were the uh, only at the time the only full time cold case unit in the state of Oklahoma. There were some, uh, I think Tulsa had a kind of a part time unit doing it. We had about three hundred unsolved homicides going back to the fifties. The earliest case that we had any kind of evidence on was a uh, a murder from fifty seven, I believe it was. 1957 1957 in that unit you worked just ballpark how many how many would you say like officer involved shootings did you were you involved in the investigation of you know that's hard to say i know that when you say investigating a case you in the homicide unit it's on an officer involved shooting it's all hands on deck so you have you, pieces of it. Right. Maybe. You may have pieces of it. It, it. Actually, signed cases is different than those that you participated in and assisted in. But uh, I know our unit as a whole would probably average about 10 to 11 officer-involved shootings a year. Most of those cases, a good portion of the unit took a part in. And then I had several. We had at least two. My team worked at least two of the Fugitive Task Force shootings, which were Always, you know, multi-jurisdictional, lots of shots, you know, lots of, you know, people involved, lots of shots fired, those kind of things. Different agencies. Right. I think a lot of people lose sight or don't lose sight, but they're not aware when they say, you know, a a fugitive task force, you're dealing with primarily what in the concealed carry community they call the 1%. That's the the 1% you're a violent criminal offenders that you're training to encounter right and these uh multi-jurisdictional task forces are hunting these people literally hunting these people daily so the probability of them being in an armed confrontation goes up exponentially with absolutely yeah i've known several people that have made trips to that unit and they all I don't think there's any one of them that has come out without being involved in some type of armed confrontation within usually within six to eight months so yeah that's you you hit it on the head they're 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 going after the worst of the worst so there there's a very little chance that they're going to spend much time there without some kind of a armed confrontation and if a criminal does something bad enough to get uh, hunted by a fugitive task force 
their motivation to escape custody is very is a lot higher than I would say your average petty criminal. So that's a fact. Well, actually, in in the first fugitive task force shooting uh, I investigated, the 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 target of the investigation executed the uh, cohort who was the driver of the getaway car because he had actually set him up and he knew it. Oh wow! And he and that's what prompted the shootout was him killing the other guy in the car before he even got into a shootout with the officer. So, yeah. So these are like the worst of the worst. Yeah. And then in your, your tenure through patrol and I'll have, you'll have to jog my memory on some of this. Cause this is kind of what we're going to focus on. Um, aside from the fact that you've had an incredibly elaborate career in law enforcement and now in private investigation with Eastridge investigations and asset protection, based here in Oklahoma where you do a multifaceted everything from like what security to property investigations to asset recovery and protection. And, uh, it's, it's it's primarily a a construction, uh, focused, uh, uh, kind of security company, but we have an investigation side of our, our company where we, we, we do everything from, you know, uh, post-conviction relief investigations, you know, people people that claim that they're innocent and they've been, you know, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not, you know. Well, I've, I've spent a lot of time in jails, and the one commonality that I've seen in the jail is there's not very many, like, guilty people in no. there, at least no. not in their mind. That's right. So, they're all innocent. Anyway, so let's go back to – Let's see the the armed robbery suspect. This will, we'll call this one the wheel gun shooting. Wheel gun shooting number one. That when was that was about what eighty seven? Yeah, yes, I would say eighty seven because uh, uh, I was working what was called Northside Patrol at the time. It doesn't even exist anymore. I think that redrawn and re encompassed, yeah, absorbed into the Hefner Division. I think it's a. Uh, it was at uh, Northwest 36th in May. What happened on that? It's it's not so much a shooting as I shot a guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? So oh, so uh, the guy was an armed robbery suspect. He was uh, robbing Fuddrucker restaurants, which was a chain that, that was yeah. popular back in the day. I think there might be some down in Dallas still, but... And you got a kind of a burger joint. Yeah, kind of a fancier burger joint, more like, you know, a set down at the table, Red Robin type thing. So what the guy was doing is he was uh, taking the employees and putting them in the, the meat freezer and, and rounding up all the women's purses and all that. And he was armed with a sawed-off shotgun. It, those of the listeners that might remember a little Oklahoma City history, we had a, a, a mass murder of some employees at a sirloin stockade in, I believe, 79. Roger Dell Stafford rounded up the uh, employees and put them in a meat freezer there and executed them all, and along with his brother and his wife as accomplices. But that was pretty fresh on people's minds in the 80s as uh, as they were being you know, herded into a meat locker. It was, it was terrifying for them. So I was actually on a call across the street – at the time, you know, we had a little bit of, uh, I, I don't know how it is now. I know there's a lot of computer dispatching and everything nowadays, so it's probably got rid of this. But at the time, the different divisions had 
different radio frequencies and you really didn't know what was going on in other divisions unless the dispatcher got on and you know alerted you to what was going on i was backing some officers from another division which was right across the street on a disturbance call and i had earlier in the shift heard a uh an alert about this robbery and a description of the vehicle and as we were finishing up this uh disturbance call we looked across the street to a texaco and one of our canine officers was on that side and that's a that was on the north side frequency he was on the will rogers at the time frequency or central 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 at the time and uh, we see him going around and around in the parking lot chasing this guy (laughs) and so we all jumped in our cars and headed over there and it and when i saw the car i recognized it from the description they had put out of this robbery suspect and he was in his car at the time and and Gary Dameron who was a canine officer at the time was later worked with him at homicide was had been flung off of the vehicle and had injured himself and was well injured by the suspect so we kind of surrounded the car and I was at the the driver's window with my model 65 out and I grabbed him by the shoulder, and I leaned in the window, and I and I could see that sawed-off shotgun by his right thigh in the in the car. Oh, so he the, he had a shotgun like within. Oh yeah, it, he could have he could have raised it up and shot, and and it wouldn't have been a problem because it was small enough. Oh wow! And he had a pile of purses in the back where he'd you know from all the women he'd robbed at the which we call prima facie evidence exactly. <laughs> so I had that uh, I. I my first mistake was I I stuck that sixty five right up against the you know back of his neck and told him if he didn't if he if he didn't you know give it, up he was going to die you know right but at the same time he's trying it's a standard vehicle and he's trying to get it in gear and we're all surrounded the car and there's an officer I know that was standing in front of the car and I'm thinking to myself if he gets that in gear, he's going to run off, run over this other officer. And I'm probably going to have to shoot him. Then I was preparing myself in that split second for possibly having to shoot him. When he did get it in gear, he got it in reversed and he reversed the vehicle into me. And I, I discharged the firearm. I discharged that 357 Magnum right in the back of his neck. And he, he survived it, but, right. uh, it took a, lot of meat off the back of his neck <laughs> i I've, I've actually seen the scene photos from that and it was pretty uh pretty impressive what a 357 mag will do at uh point blank right uh but from that so you're carrying a double action model 66 and i've actually shot that gun before mine was a 65, or, yeah, 65. I, I wanted a 66 but didn't police, have the money back then. <laughs> police salaries didn't, <laughs> right. didn't afford the luxuries of an adjustable rear sight. Right. So, so, but that model 65 that you've got, I mean, it, it, I've shot it in the past over the years. That is not, it's probably, I'm going to guess it has about a 12 to 14 pound double action. Yeah, I, that was, that's pre- pretty accurate. I would say. Did you, were you ever cognizant that there was weight on the trigger? I uh, know, uh, you know, the, it's funny. I, I learned this later as an investigator, as a homicide investigator, but you got to remember that this is a time frame that a lot of things were becoming known to uh, investigators like, on police. Like on phenomenon? Police. Yeah, physiological uh, 
effects that you know trauma and, and those kind of things had. I set that magnum off inside a uh, vehicle with my head halfway in it, and I never heard it go off. And everybody around me were like <laughs> holding their ears, like, "Damn, wow. that was loud!" Wow. And uh, it's in it, what's what's unfortunate about that is that in that time frame between say about I'd say pre late nineties to to now. Uh, investigators and command staff saw things like that as deception. If you didn't remember the number of shots you fired or the sequence of shots you fired, or if you had tunnel vision and you didn't see, you know, people on the sides of you and things like that, when you relayed that later without those details, they, they saw that as deception. And it was, uh, it was very explainable later when they studied that a little deeper to see why people don't remember those things. I, I had, at the time, I had no idea I'd shot him. I, in fact, the big joke is the guy that I originally mentioned, Gary Dameron, that was was injured in that. I worked with him later in homicide. I I remember asking him if he had shot, and he looked at me and said, "No, you shot him." Wow. And I didn't I didn't remember that. I I had. Bear in mind that I knew the situation was getting to a point where I was probably going to have to use deadly force, and and maybe somebody next to me felt the same way, but I had not even realized that 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 had happened. So, so from from that from the time point of you getting to the car to the shot going off about about what kind of time span, if you can even distill that. It's been a while, but it, I remember it was almost immediate because when we got across the street, he was actually he was he had been moving around that parking lot in that car and had kind of wedged himself up on a curb near the the entrance of the the gas station, and so it was immediate. I mean, we swamped that vehicle immediately, just kind of everybody you know getting around it and you know drawing down on it and all that, trying to get him to. You know, cease being a cease, criminal. Yeah, to stop. <laughs> well, so you're talking a matter of a couple of seconds. So absolutely from with all the detail you just gave about where people were standing, what was going on, all those subsequent details around it. But you can boil that the the second that that went off, that that time frame was only just a, a very few seconds from the time you approached it until the, the shot went off, right? Right. So, and then experiencing auditory exclusion tunnel vision tunnel vision those all those of things. things yeah and that was something when we we kind of dissected uh my dad's shooting from 79 is there was a ton of detail that he recalled and all these like side subsequent factors that were coming into play and he boiled that entire incident down to about two and a half seconds right and you're in which to me and to a lot of people that's that's almost unachievable performance for the average human being like to have that much cognitive ability in that window of time. And right. that's something that, uh, when I talk to like concealed carriers and things like that, it's, it's like, look, the shooting portion is generally a pretty simple. So, you know, uh, it's the, the, the most minute detail of the overall incident. Right. But especially talking to police officers, it's amazing how much more hyper aware they are of circumstances, surroundings, lighting conditions, other people, 
what's behind what they're going to shoot at. I mean, all these things that you train and ingrain over time that if you're the brand new average concealed carrier, those things, you're not put in those situations where you're able to dissect the details of an incident. It's, oh no, this is happening. I've got to shoot. Right. On the law enforcement side, you see it really commonly that, hey, this person was hyper aware that all of these other things were going on in the span of about two to three seconds, which is pretty fascinating to think about. Right. The other thing I'm, I'm becoming more aware of is things like uh, in the civilian circles, we argue about trigger weight and reset and how fast your gun cycles and how fast you're able to return the gun back to the target and things like this. And the more you talk to people that are involved in critical incidents like that, the more you realize that it, the gun could have had a 50 pound trigger and they would have right. made their way through it with a quickness exactly, um, because of the, you know, adrenaline dump and all the physiology things like you mentioned earlier. When do you think that shift came and do you have any idea what kind of inspired it? Like you were talking about a lot of people thought if you weren't aware of these things and you couldn't describe why you didn't hear a gun go off or how many shots, what do you think kind of, when did that start to change? And then what do you think made it start to change that way? Well, I, I know that it had already started to change in some of the, in the bigger departments around and say out in LA and those kind of th- places. But, uh, Prior to me going to the homicide unit, you know, my brother, your dad mm-hmm. was in homicide. I was in the assault unit. I was working shootings and those kind of things from the everyday people perspective. And your dad was in homicide. And I know that I remember a particular case he was investigating uh, on an officer that uh, uh, he couldn't recall the number of shots he fired in the in the command staff had had a lot of problem with that and that was probably late 99 early 2000 somewhere in there and i know that that's when it started kind of becoming common knowledge to to places like oklahoma city and you know the midwest and south and all that where they were having less of a a mindset that this was a, a discipline issue and more of a mindset this is a this is a physiological situation that occurs in the body and training, 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 and that kind of thing. And, and quit looking at it more like deception there. I mean, you know, there's obvious reasons. If, if you catch somebody being deceptive, like they're trying to mitigate, you know, the dangers they put somebody else in it's, I'm not talking about those kind of deceptions. I'm talking about things that when your mind is in that, fight or flight fight or flight and your brain is shutting down other things to deal with this situation because that's basically what's happening Mm -hmm. is your brain is turning off the unnecessary things to deal with the necessary things yeah when they started noticing that and actually psychiatrists and psychologists were doing studies on it Mm -hmm. uh that that was probably about the time i went in homicide so so early 2001 which is wild to think that that was 20 years ago. Yeah, that is wild. I can't believe it. But uh, for me, when I started to notice, like got into law enforcement in 2002, but in the military, 98 to 02, even there, there were, there was literature and study literature and things that I, I would call them almost an elementary level of description for 
uh, being engaged in armed combat. Right. And it was, it was things like you may have uh, fight or flight and training develops confidence to overcome that. Right. And we had these, I mean, they were really rudimentary manuals about, uh, you know, like instinctively firing a, a, a rifle, which, because, okay, you're going to lose your ability to aim when you're under stress. So we need right. to make you this just to become automatic. When I got into law enforcement in 2002, we started seeing the studies like that Colonel Dave Grossman had written, like on combat and on killing and doing these seminars. Oh, I'm trying to think. Paladin Press was pretty kind of in its on its way out. It had been kind of moved, but they were starting to really study the psychology of critical incidents and starting to see all these common trends with you know auditory exclusion, tunnel vision, loss of fine motor skills, things like that that were that were always present, but were kind of an unexplainable phenomenon right it's really come to the forefront now that you know our country's been engaged in our combat for almost 20 years and it's kind of winding down now but still that was a large sample test of physiology with uh people being in critical incidents over and over and over again and how you're more trained more proficient people are able to operate in that without going so far into the hypervigilant state that they can't function. Right. And you know, those people, and we, we've met some of them over the years that uh, are in really highly specialized units that are in gunfights five, six, seven times a night for three months and everything from a minor gun, you know, a couple of rounds fired to a, an extremely heavy engagement. And you know, their blood pressure doesn't even really get up at that point because right. they've been inoculated in that environment so long that was kind of where I saw the shift and where I really saw the shift happen was when Colonel Dave Grossman started going around and giving seminars on these things, um, about, Hey, what's your mind and body is going to go through when you're involved in a critical incident. And if you're aware of them and prepared for them, this is how you train around them and train to function in those, Exactly. which kind of brings me and leads into part two, which would be your engagement with the guy in Norman. And one of the things I always found fascinating about it was, you had been trained on revolvers. You're in from 85 to about 89, I think was transition courses to semi-autos, 89, 90. And that happened somewhere in about 89, 89. Yeah. It was right after we had transitioned to, I was carrying a Beretta 92 F at the time and pre S <laughs> yes. And it, uh, it, you know, it's 15 rounds, you know, one in the pipe. If you've got, you know, for your, that first round yeah, for that first go. But uh, kind of the, the short story there is uh, we went there because Oklahoma City canine had gone uh, to Norman. I mean, to let me back up. A Moore officer. Moore being another jurisdiction, yeah, metro jurisdiction. Just south of Oklahoma City is a small town called Moore. I lived in Oklahoma City just on the edge of Moore, and a couple of other guys I worked with did as well. And we'd been working the third shift out of Oklahoma City, and they had sent us home early that night because – um, it was a, it was an overlap shift. So they had a bunch of guys that night and, you know, last words, my supervisor told us was don't get into anything. <laughs> Famous last <laughs> yes. words, go so, home, go directly home. So, um, there was a more officer that stopped a guy that had later 
determined that he'd been conducting a bunch of uh, armed robberies of convenience stores on on the south side, and he was actually kind of he was a uh, later de- they later determined he was kind of a suicidal guy, and he'd left a note at home for his family, and and uh, when the a more officer stopped him, probably within a mile of the where I was living at the time. He uh, he let the officer up whenever he was walking up there. He had nine millimeter. That a lot of people have don't understand that in this time frame in the in the late eighties, early nineties, we bought our own vests. Uh, the department mm-hmm. didn't provide them, and and there is a shelf life on Kevlar, as we all know now. Right. But uh, and and the quality wasn't near what it is now. So. Um, the officer, the more officers, a lot of the rounds were going through his vest and, and stopping on the way out. Wow. Going through him. But, uh, he, he survived barely, but, uh, he rolled away from the car and, and crawled into some grass. This occurred right by my house, as I said. And uh-huh. one of the, one of my buddies had stopped to help the officers, the more officers out with uh, their scene and everything and called me to come help. So I stopped by. We we had take them cars, and uh-huh. you know it's all, you know, police cars and all our gear we we had with us all the time. So I was headed down to help him because he was just ahead of me, and he said, "Forget that. They've got the guy on the ground in Norman, Oklahoma City. Canine officers are en route, and we need to go down there and back these canine officers." Well, Norman is just south of Moore. And, you know, you had Oklahoma City, Moore, and then Norman. So right. we all headed down to Norman, to this neighborhood, uh, not far from the campus over there. And and uh, they had him on foot in that neighborhood. He had crashed his car. And we ended up cornering him, me and three other Oklahoma City officers, uh, uh, another officer and, and two more canine officers, uh, cornered him between a house. He was laying under a flatbed trailer, and we were – we were alerted to his presence there and we, we responded there and then almost immediately he's uh, telling us he's going to shoot it out with us and that kind of thing. So we're, we're in the back of a flatbed truck that's facing that trailer. And I rather excitedly yelled over to my partner that was probably a foot away from me (laughs) that I was going to make a run for a tree but I was in my excited state. A state, I'd I'd yelled it out so loud that even the bad guy he, heard he, you. Even he heard my my plans. So as soon as I jumped off of the the back of the truck, he opened fire. Hey, and uh, I ran and jumped behind the tree, and I I peeked around the tree, and I could see him. He's looking for me. He's got a gun in each hand. He had a revolver and and, a, and an automatic and a semi-automatic in one hand and a revolver in the other hand, and he's searching for me. And we engage, and it's it's a hell of a shootout. I think I think there was a total of thirty five or six rounds fired, but but I as I'd mentioned earlier, I was I was freshly carrying that Beretta ninety two F. Now bear in mind that I had spent those years before that, those few years because I was pretty new, mm-hmm. carrying a revolver, carrying six shots, training with six shots, and we did the old uh, you know. Six shots dump. You know, if you had a speed loader, you could use that. Not six more rounds. Six more, and then you go. Well, unbeknownst to me, in that shootout, I was uh, firing six rounds out of my 
Beretta 92F and then dumping mags and reloading. I had no idea. I had no idea that was the case until I was talking to a homicide investigator that was interviewing me on that. And he said, just one question. Why, why are you dumping around dumping mags <laughs> with lots of rounds? Of them? I had no idea. It's just my brain was taking care of business, you know, counting to six and right. And I was not even, you know, it was shutting down all the other unnecessary things. So, yeah. And in that, so in, in a, typical police academy you're going to go through about two weeks of firearms training at least here in oklahoma that's kind of the standard is two weeks so you're talking right. two 40 hour day or two 40 hour weeks back to back that's about 80 hours and then you likely go through maybe an advanced three day about 24 hours so you're talking maybe 100 hours of training total on and in that day on a revolver and then you go through a semi-automatic transition course. And as I recall back then, they were two days long, two or three days long. So you're talking 24 hours, maybe. Here was one of the, the things that that kind of always bothered me. And, you know, your, your gunfight there really illustrated it uh, as to why I, I've kind of had some heartburn with it for years. And it's it's nothing against marksmanship training or any of that, but a lot of police agencies are still rooted heavily firmly rooted in revolver-based doctrine so a lot of their qualification courses to accommodate a revolver shooter and a semi-automatic shooter are restricted to six round six round iterations you're Uh, never going to fire more than six shots in a string and we've kind of engineered out the reloading portion under time and that's kind of where i thought I, I had a lot of heartache with it. It was like, hey, man, we're shooting six and six. That's And I have a, a, a semi-automatic handgun that's capable of 15 plus. And you're ingraining into my psyche that when I hear number six, I'm going for a reload. And to me, I look at that and I go, well, here's a real world example of how detrimental that can be because you're essentially handicapping yourself right. for all the benefits of a semi-auto. You figure even with 16 rounds, you had two and a half times more than you would have in a revolver, you know, dumping nine rounds on the ground and reloading, but having a hundred plus hours of time doing that compared to 24 hours, but even in that 24 hours being restricted to a revolver neutral course for the most part, I mean, revolver neutral being everything in six shot increments. Right. So and I still see that to this very day. I was talking to Lee Weems a couple of weeks ago, and Lee's like, you know, we still have our qualification courses called the Georgia Double Action Course because they're still based in double action revolvers. And we, right. um, and that's something that I think hopefully over time changes on a grand scale. Is I'm not poo pooing the guys that call carry revolvers, but no. the people that carry semi autos, a lot of them never understand the benefit of that until they get in an engagement that goes longer than six rounds right so well well, and and i've got theories on all this stuff from just from my perspective mm -hmm. from my from my years of investigating this thing i think what you're talking about and this is just my opinion is a crossover from what's practical and what is the measurable well i mean i don't want to criticize too much but what what command worries about is this 
fictional overkill thing. Okay. You'll fire a bunch of rounds at a, I mean, not just command, but city attorneys, people like that. It's the perception of overkill, which is not a thing. You can't kill a a person too much. They're either dead or not. Right. That's the, the, the question is, was you justified in it? And was it reasonable for the right? And it's reasonable. If someone's trying to give up, you know, that's, you Mm -hmm. know, that's, those aren't the things I'm talking about. I'm talking about if it took you 15 rounds, if it took you 50 rounds to end that threat, it takes you what it takes you. Right. But that has a, that has an image attached to it. That is, it's unrealistic, but it is unfortunately an image and, and people, people kind of fixate on that. Oh my God, how many times did they shoot? Well, if you're in that situation, you know you're going to shoot until you don't have to anymore. Right. And you're not, you know, everybody says, well, you know, police are trained to kill. No, you're you're trained to end a threat. You're trained to end a threat. And that threat is over when you perceive it to be over. Right. And, and, and I've if, seen examples of that over the years as oh, yeah. well. But, you know, kind of the, the, the two takeaways that I took from both of those, like on the training side of things, which is – you know, not to dive off into the administrative aspects right, and all that right. too much, but, um, you know, since I've been involved in, in training people how to shoot, um, you know, you've been to my, one of my civilian classes right. and, and training police officers how to shoot is I started to become aware and it was really inspired by the two incidents that you were involved in was one trigger weight. You know, everybody argues about, Oh, I've got to have this perfect, this and perfect that. And, and I look at that and go, if if you're good, if you're proficient, it really doesn't matter. It's just a matter of preference. Right. Um, and then the second thing being, if you are training in a revolver based doctrine with a semi auto, you can really handicap the way that you approach. That's right. The the way that you approach managing a firearm, and then the third takeaway from all from both of those combined is. On shooting number two, now you've been, okay, you've been through the first one, which you you said yourself it wasn't really a shooting. It was just you happened to shoot somebody in right. an incident. So, and that one, you experienced all these these phenomena, auditory exclusion, tunnel vision, all this, that, not even realizing that you had touched off a 140-grain spear in the cab of a car. Right. Right. On the second one, do you remember being conscious of the noise like I know you could pray, you could hear gunfire from officers and bad guy at some point. Right. And in your own, I, I remember gunfire. I don't remember it as prominent as I remember. There were two, two sounds in that, that I remember to this day is, uh, he was underneath a flat trailer. Uh-huh. And I was, we were staring at each other. I was looking around a tree and he's looking at me from under the trailer and I'm shooting and I'm hearing, more than the shots in my memory, I hear uh, uh, projectiles hitting metal. And I was thinking that I was hitting maybe the axle of the trailer and those kind of things. And and Gordon Robinson, the mm-hmm. ballistics expert at the time, was telling me that actually what that was, was behind, he, behind him was a stockade fence, and behind that stockade fence was a cast iron bathtub. Oh, wow. And, that, and those rounds were, were going through that stockade fence and hitting that cast iron iron tub and making that racket. And that was the predominant sound in my mind's eye that I remember 
more than anything is louder that, than the gunfire louder even than the gunfire it was it's in my mind and and i don't i don't uh i'm not saying i didn't hear the gunfire but i remember those sounds more than anything because i was thinking to me i was thinking i'm hitting that axle i'm not hitting him and it's still going on you know kind of an interesting thing you know a lot of uh like when we talk safety briefings, you know, and, and Larry Vickers does a great one that I show in all my classes. And he talks about in the real world, there is no dirt. There is no earthen berm behind your tar or there, right. <laughs> think, think the, the shopping center parking lot. Right. And in kind of a humorous fashion, I go, what better circumstance could you have, uh, you know, being the good guy, could you have asked for than to have a cast iron tub right. directly behind the bad guy to mitigate any civilian injury? Right. So, just kind of a funny takeaway, but do you remember it being loud? I remember it being loud, but but specifically not so much the gunfire as just remembering the, that sound. But a strange thing happened in that right after the, the shooting kind of subsided a little bit, and it was still kind of going, I mean, it, I'm, I'm talking fractions of a second. I'm not talking about minutes went by mm-hmm. in this. But what I hadn't uh, realized is I had stood up at that point at some point to see if I could see over the trailer and see if he was still moving, if he still had the guns in his hand and it see if I could get a better perspective. What I, what I had missed completely was my partner had, had come off of the back of the truck and was just below me in the tree behind the tree. And he fired one more round off basically right at my knees. And that was loud. That was loud. I thought he was shooting a Magnum revolver too. No, he he had the ninety two F as well. Oh, okay, yeah, okay. And uh, no, the the one of the canine officers had a a Magnum, and it it, there is a there was a distinct difference difference in in that sound, but but you don't remember like if you forgot to put your ears on at the range, having that like immediate like ouch that hurts my head. No, but I do remember my ears ringing after it was all over sitting there. When you're sitting there and you're waiting for everybody, all of a sudden your ears are ringing and, and you, your your mind's starting to fill in those gaps, I guess, mm-hmm. that that it missed out on. But Man, that's a lot of takeaways in that. It, it's interesting in these when you – like especially when I've been doing these these interviews with people and, different, and talking about different things is, you know, I have – two people in my immediate family, one who was in an armed confrontation with a revolver and right. one that was in an armed confrontation with a revolver and a semi-auto and to be able to take away pieces of each one of those. And the, the fascinating thing is even talking between you and my dad, the common thing was there is a ton of detail that happened in a matter of seconds. And right. you got to remember, you know, I was, Oh shoot. I wasn't, cognizant of when my dad was involved in the shooting both of yours i remember seeing the news reports and and seeing you immediately afterwards and things like that and hearing about that incident and thinking gosh that was like a 30 minute gunfight you know what i mean it sure seemed yeah it sure seemed like it and when you hear the descriptions and then uh you know i got i got the great fortune of of finding your old uh folder of the scene reports and all that stuff back in the old homicide office. I got stuck up there for like a day and a half with witnesses from a big scene. And, uh, I was like, Hey, what are, I see this one. What's this? And they're like, Oh, those are old officer involved shooting books. So I started 
just going through them and, yeah. and looking at different ones. And I remember finding yours in there and reading through that and, you know, seeing some of the reports and the way that they kind of, I won't say they differed like there was some real distinct difference between the way they're compl- compiled now, but a lot of the verbiage was a lot different. Right. And then looking at, you know, the timeline of that and going, wow, that happened in a few seconds. That wasn't, you know, as a little kid looking at that thinking, man, that, that was like a 35 minute firefight and explosions. No, it was, it was distilled down to just under a minute, you right. know, like substantially under a minute, probably what, 15 to 30 seconds, maybe. Probably. Yeah. And that's and, a long time in an armed confrontation. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think we're programmed from, from TV shows and movies to think that these things go on with a lot of conversation and a lot of, a lot of thought and, and, you know, minutes and minutes and minutes, it, they, they happen fast and they happen and they're over fast. Yeah. What was the distance between you and the trailer where that dude was at under the trailer? I read it once, but, uh, I don't remember exactly. It was a lot closer than I remember it being. I, I went, I went by and found that house a while back and and checked it out and that whole that whole area where that that went went off when the, i mean where that all happened mm-hmm. is very tight and it was a lot tighter than i remember it at the time but i do remember being close enough that when i jumped behind that tree he had been firing at my feet oh wow and as i ran to the tree and uh i remember looking doing a quick peek around the right side of the tree to try to get my bearings of where he was at and what his position was. And I remember seeing him eye to eye, only he was looking at the left side of the tree. I think in his mind, he was thinking, I'm going to pop out on that side. And I remember his eyesight quickly adjusting to see my head pop out. And then I went back, and when I came back around, I was firing. When I pop, I got his position. I got his uh, that he was armed, and he's looking. And then when I popped back around, I started firing. And it was seems like it. Uh, let's see, that was probably. I bet it was under fifteen feet. Wow, I'm pretty sure it would have to be under fifteen feet. So that was under five yards. Yeah, it it would wow. have been probably five to uh, say eight yards, Shit. maybe. That's closer than I would want to be. It's close. <laughs> yeah, but bear in mind, I mean, uh, when we when we found him there, the, the, it was it was kind of a fluke. We had searched that whole area in there, and we had gone back, and the Norman police that were running that that uh, scene, or they were they actually had that neighborhood locked down. They were having a briefing. They had guys in place to keep people from leaving the neighborhood, but they were running a briefing. And uh, an unarmed deputy from Cleveland County who was there just to deliver coffee. He was a jailer, I think. Mm-hmm. He came around the corner and said, "I just spotted him. He's under the. He's uh, around this house near a trailer." So when we came around there, we we're not seeing him initially, and we were on top of him before we really realized it. So it was all close quarter stuff. The other, the other one that I, I was always kind of curious about was, did you pop out in the same position on the tree that you did the peak from? I did. And I don't know that there was a lot of thought behind that, except for, I remember, I remember that when I did my quick peek around the tree, 
I went around with my gun, but I, I was, I was trying to locate where I, I didn't know where he was exactly. Right. When I ran for that tray, I knew he was roughly out there somewhere. Mm -hmm. And when I quick peeked around, I saw him and we made, that's when I saw his eyes and he was, he was looking for me is what he was doing. Mm -hmm. And then he noticed me quick peek just at the last minute. And then when I came back around, I was, I was shooting. I was shooting when I came around the tree. So, yeah. So probably just a split second of time. Yeah. And that, and that's, I was, I was in a squatting position at that. I mean, I was down on one knee behind that tree mm -hmm. and then I had raised up in that before my partner had come over there and fired one more round right by my knee. Yeah. See, this is a, this is another interesting takeaway when, when it comes to training, everybody gets real wrapped around the axle about which knee you kneel down on. Right. Did it matter? <laughs> I don't remember which one I might've been on both of them for all I know. I just, yeah. I remember I was, but they were behind the tree. I remember I was, I, I was very skinny mm -hmm. and I remember that tree seemed to be very skinny <laughs> and it, there wasn't a lot of tree there fighting behind a crepe myrtle. That's right. It, yeah. Well, that was something else I was going to ask you. Do you ever remember seeing seeing sights on bad guy in between you and bad guy? I don't remember that at all. I remember I, I remember adjusting. I, I I really don't remember. I I I remember thinking I was hitting that trailer uh, axle to the trailer. <laughs> but what's interesting is uh, when they were uh, talking about the ballistics later, they said one of my rounds went between his trigger finger on his right hand it went went into his hand uh just below his trigger finger and lodged up in his elbow and they said it was pretty clear from that 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 he had the gun pointed directly at me when when I fired that and I I don't remember that at all I just remember adjusting fire to where I thought I was hitting you know something you'd mentioned that I've noticed your dad and I work as uh, expert consultants for sweet law for officers that are involved in shootings where we, we, we sit down with them before they do their interviews and we go over their case and, and talk to them. One of the things I've noticed is that the difference it's spot on what you're saying is when you talk to guys that, that have done time in combat and, and been in military service, there's just not that anxiety with them. It's uh, they are very professional. I'm not saying the other guys aren't, but you can see the effects on people that are not a, uh, accustomed to that. When you're talking to them about a shooting, they've never been involved in one, or they had planned the you know they had planned for it and trained for it like all cops do, but they've never been in. And then you talk to the guys that have come on that were maybe in, in a special forces unit or something like that. And, and it's just, a, it's night and day different between mm -hmm. the effects on them from it. People that are extremely proficient with a handgun and they're skilled, empty hand, meaning, you know, hand to hand, they're skilled and they have, they have a degree of confidence in right. that area. I'm starting to see that they don't suffer the same emotional wound as somebody who lacks confidence in those areas right. because those people it's, it's an interesting divide of people that say, I just felt like I was going to die. And those people that said, 
I wasn't worried about the the situation. I just knew I was going to have to shoot this person. You're going to have to so take care of it. Yeah. Right. So there's there's a, a a finite line between people who have maybe they lack skills and confidence in some of those areas. Right. That it tends to leave a much deeper uh, lasting emotional wound on those people than it does people that go out and they train with their handgun and they they go and they roll on the mats with people or they take a boxing class or something and they they never lose control so to speak right. they never yeah. feel like they're out of control yeah i could see that um and, and that's not a formal study we i've talked to uh, a, a police psychologist about that well, he's not a psychologist but he's a, a police trauma specialist and all that about how we can mitigate some of the lasting um emotional traumas from critical incidents and the easiest the most direct method to rectify some of that is to give people back their confidence in their shooting abilities their hand-to-hand abilities their custody and control right. their verbal abilities things like that to where when they're engaged in those situations they didn't lose control of the situation they handled it as opposed to regaining control of a situation by feeling like they were going to die. Right. But, but, and bear in mind for the people that aren't aware of this, you know, have, haven't investigated these things. We're not talking about a difference between not fearing, you know, that your life is in danger and right. you had to react out of that. It's just the confidence to react to your life being in danger and someone who isn't probably emotionally and mentally prepared to defend themselves and and then it takes a toll on them later right you know, more so. yeah I, yeah i didn't mean to like mitigate the whole no, well no. i didn't feel like i was threatened at all you no, know it makes no, sense no. it makes sense to me but it may not make sense to yeah. the average person and you know when we're when we're talking to these officers about officer involved shootings the thing that uh, on that a uh, side note on what i'm what we were talking about the thing that we have to try to uh, can uh, make them understand is when you're talking to other cops, when you're talking to prosecutors, your cop lingo is okay. People understand it. But a lot of these things, the what I call the, the broader audience, mm-hmm. is that jury on a maybe a civil case in three years, it might be a school teacher or a truck driver right. that don't understand those things. And you've got to talk, you make them understand that these things, you know, not, not from a cop perspective, from a person perspective. Right. Well, from a podcast perspective, uh, I have to be really cognizant not to go, all right, we're 10, eight, right. <laughs> nobody knows what that means. Right. So, and, and with that being said, we're about 10, seven. So, uh, I think that was an, an excellent dive into, uh, some training stuff, some psyche stuff, some physiological stuff. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming to the, uh, beat lab remote location, downtown. Um, do you guys still have your website? Eastridge PI? Yeah. It just, it's just, uh, rolled over to a, uh, Facebook page. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Well, I will tag that in our uh, show notes. Eastridge PI, Kyle Eastridge from Eastridge PI, retired police officer, uh, multifaceted investigations company now, and uh, rather elaborate and colorful career. So thanks for joining us. Reminder, uh, 
check out Mountain Man Medical, mountainmanmedical.com. Tune in, subscribe on uh, whatever your favorite platform is, iTunes. I believe we're on Spotify now, several others. And uh, next week, I'm going to have one Mr. Kyle Sweet from Sweet Law, and we're going to talk about qualified immunity, which kind of is a hot-button topic right now. Aside from that, guys, we'll we'll talk to you next time. LLC presents the following content for educational purposes only. Play my always take proper precautions. Follow all firearm safety rules. Consult with a competent firearms instructor and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.